the Ortho PAC hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Listeners, welcome today Nick Patterson, PharmD. Nick recently gave a lecture at our Phoenix meeting titled Postoperative Pain Management. Nick, thanks for being on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about Neurontin and Lyrica, the gabapentinoids. Nick, how do these work? What makes them effective and which one do you like better? This is a fight I have with my PA that does pain management in clinic all the time. So the gabapentinoids work at alpha-2 ligand receptors in the brain. Essentially, what they do is they work around the whole GABA, which is the gabapentin pregabalin names are what they do. Basically calm down nerve responses. Originally, they were developed as anti-epileptic medications because they slow down nerve impulses in the brain. And what they found is that, well, nerve impulses don't just happen in the brain. For people who have neuropathic pain, they have a huge generation of nerve impulses up and down. The, the nerve fiber itself and using gabapentin and pregabalin will decrease those, which is the genesis of where that came from. Now, which one do I like better? The joke between me and my pain management PA, he kept asking me, why do you dose gabapentin all the time? And my answer succinctly was because I don't have a DEA number. I can't prescribe pregabalin, which is a class five in uh, the government system. Now that I have a DEA number, I can confidently say that I like Lyrica better. <laughs> And uh, it, there's really no head-to-head stuff, head-to-head trial saying one is better than the other for post-operative pain. There isn't. What I like about pregabalin, the ease of dosing, the, um, the length of activity for the medication, and any time that you can take somebody down from taking gabapentin three or four times a day to taking Lyrica twice a day, then you're going to increase compliance significantly at that point. I have my favorite type of steroid too. You know, I like triamcinolone over celestone or whatever, and I just think it works better. You know, I just feel like patients seem like they do better with it. But anyways, I I get it. I know what you're saying. Have you tried Zilretta yet for your uh, knee injections? I actually have. I'm not sure if we're using it because of costs. Yeah, but we were using it some. Yeah, that that has a slow release kind of little delayed release microscopic things and it doesn't dissipate out of the joint yeah yeah um another part i want to tell people is that if you are going to be changing from gabapentin to pregabalin remember it's a six to one ratio somebody's taking 300 milligrams of gabapentin 50 milligrams of pregabalin if they're taking 1800 milligrams a day of gabapentin you can just pretty much move them to you know 300 milligrams of pregabalin a good six to one ratio between gabapentin and pregabalin works for just transitioning the dose especially if you have somebody who is on 1800 milligrams a day and they're like i cannot take that midday dose it is just too hard to do it they can transition to straight over to 150 bid of lyric and be doing pretty good with them then got it what about renal considerations with uh, these meds what kind of renal considerations yeah. do we have so renal consideration, anytime that you have a creatinine clearance less than 50, you're going to have to look at renal adjustments with these medications. Pregabalin, I like better because you can go all the way down to 30 before you really need to make any changes. But gabapentin is going to have a hard and fast rule about 50. And this is most important in your elderly population, your geriatrics, which are going to be much more sensitive to those somnolent effects from the medication. Okay, let's go to ketamine. You talked about how much you like ketamine, and this, this is from your presentation. So I love ketamine because in the way it works, it works completely different than opioid agonists anyway. 
instead of just focusing on that new opioid receptor that can cause respiratory depression, ketamine focuses on the NMDA receptor as an antagonist, which is great if you have anybody as well who has breathing difficulties because it does not suppress the respiratory drive, as well as the way ketamine interacts with that NMDA receptor is a long-term effect. It's not something short. That's why in some of these pain clinics or what we call the ketamine clinics out there, somebody can come in and get a ketamine infusion and get one done every two weeks or every month, and it can control the pain for up to two weeks. Ketamine alters the way that receptor responds and puts out any kind of pain signals. And ketamine isn't the only one that does that. We've got small clinical trials where magnesium infusions during surgery can do this as well. So it's all about hitting pain from multiple different receptors out there. Now, the problem with ketamine is, I think it's the biggest, everybody's biggest fear is what if you drop into a K-hole? K-hole? Tell me about K-hole. K-hole. So a K-hole is when you give too much ketamine and cause them to go into a completely dissociative state. You will see it in, I think the best portrayal of it, it's been in a lot of horror movies where they, they drug somebody with ketamine, but it does end up happening when you go to the highest doses of ketamine. And you'll get pretty much just a stare and nothing else. You get pretty much a non-responsive person. But when they come out of that, that's where you have your hypertensive, almost urgency. You have somebody who is combative and they don't know exactly what's going on. That's always been the fear with ketamine. Okay. And then you also talked about when someone wakes up from ketamine, and I've actually seen this in the ED. I have not seen this at clinic or, and, and to my knowledge, I don't know, you know, I don't, with the anesthesia, that's kind of, they do the meds and, you know, I, so mm-hmm. I don't know, but yeah, tell us about what happens sometimes when people wake up from that. They will wake up being, it's a, almost, almost like a delirium when they wake up. I won't say it's delirium because that's a completely different diagnosis, but when they come out of it, they don't know what just happened. They don't know what's going on. They're scared and they want to, they they don't understand the surroundings around them. And that causes that fear response. And you have to, a lot of times, hold them down in bed when they're coming out of it. Now, not everybody's going to be that combative. A lot of people just have increases in heart rate, increases in blood pressure. And a lot of times they end up giving excess opioids in order to control that response. One question I had when I was reviewing your presentation was the short duration of action of ketamine. How does it work that it lasts longer? Maybe you've already said this and I just missed it, but how, how does it work for postoperative pain with a short duration of action? Okay, so the way it works, whenever you alter that NMDA receptor and it's not able to generate a pain response, you don't get a hyperalgesia of the receptor. So essentially you're stopping the nerve impulses themselves from getting very sensitive to what's going on with the pain. And once you stop that from occurring, you stop that signal going back and forth as much as possible. Essentially, what it does is if you stop the generation of that response from the NMDA receptor, similar to how methadone works and similar to also how dextromethorphan works, then it cannot set up that sensitivity of the receptor or in the pain area. You had mentioned IV lidocaine. You don't really think it's effective. So I, I didn't really want to spend a lot of time on that. Do you have any comments on it? No, we're just uh, waiting for more data to come out on it. First of all, we thought it was going to be effective, but what ended up happening is the data overall in the trials, and they only studied it really in abdominal pain or post-abdominal surgeries, and the data was conflicting at that point. So we're just waiting for more data out there. Now, 
personally, I've known multiple people, especially GI docs that have used it and had really good results with it. Especially in the younger population, it seems to be relatively safe. It just doesn't have the data out there to support it from Cochrane database or anything else. You had also just a little bit ago mentioned IV magnesium sulfate. And it's similar to ketamine without the hallucination, so without the mm-hmm. you know dissociation or or that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. When would it be a good option for post-operative pain for orthopedic stuff? Anytime you have somebody who has a history of either poor pain control post-surgical or somebody who has a contraindication or an intolerance to ketamine would be a good place for this. The person has to have healthy kidneys to start with because if not, you can start to uh, have excess magnesium in the body, which can cause uh, effects as well. But usually you have somebody who has poor post-operative pain control, doesn't tolerate ketamine, or potentially somebody who has been on long-term opiates as well, which usually means you have harder pain control post-surgical. And I have to say, when I see IV lidocaine, IV magnesium sulfate, I'm thinking ACLS. So any like cardiac issues or anything you have to think about when you're administering these meds? Yeah, that's one of the big ones. Making sure you have a, and I don't know, do you guys still send people out to get a, like a general medicine release before you do surgery on them? No, it's usually me or a colleague of mine that fills out a paperwork (laughs) and the five minute physical exam, breathe in and out, you know, the stethoscope (laughs) on one spot, breathe in and out. Okay. Yeah. Your heart's beating good. So yeah. Listen to the triple point. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, that being said, I I'm, I'm, being a little bit funny, but we do have, you know, if somebody has issues, we do get medical clearance, you know, cardiac clearance okay. or whatever. Yeah. And a couple of things to look for when you're going through their meds, are they on beta blockers like atenolol or metoprolol, calcium channel blockers, specifically diltazem or verapamil. If they have any history of an SVT, a supraventricular tachycardia or an atrial fibrillation, those people you definitely wouldn't want to use lidocaine in because it could be a chance of causing an arrhythmia. Those are the people that I'd be most worried about using lidocaine in. Got it. Listeners, please stay tuned next week for part three of our discussion with Nick Patterson, clinical pharmacy practitioner. We're having a discussion about postoperative pain management, and we're going to cover some opioids and alpha-2 agonists. Thank you for joining the OrthoPAC podcast. Please follow the physician assistants in orthopedic surgery on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Please subscribe to our podcast. If this has been helpful, please take a moment to leave a review.